beautiful song. That uh, song is called The Path of Life, written by our own Hannah and, and Kelsey. It's out on Spotify or going to be out on Spotify. So uh, feel free to stream that because that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the journey of faith through the path of life. And uh, if you're just joining with us, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to the past uh, few weeks because these messages progress, right? It's, it's showing a whole path over a lifetime. And today we're talking about, quite honestly, what I feel is the most mysterious, maybe the most important, but the most difficult because it really, it doesn't get talked about much because it really doesn't fit the American cultural view of the spiritual life. Tonight, we're, today we're talking about desire and the dark night of the soul. And that's not like Batman, Dark Knight, okay? Just, my staff kept spelling it K-N-I-G-H-T. It's not the Batman, Dark Knight. But we are talking about a season that comes that we just sang about. Uh, but it starts with desire. Now, we've been using this picture, uh, this analogy uh, that actually comes from the 15th century. Uh, ancients who studied the ways of spiritual formation and we've, we've said, imagine your soul like, a, like a, a mansion with seven dwellings. And when you invite God into your life, because of what Christ did to forgive you, God comes and dwells at the very center of your being. And God's light and love is there, though we may not feel it because there are things blocking it the farther out we get. But we live in these different dwellings. We start in new beginnings. It's kind of a honeymoon period of faith. Then we enter into failing forward where temptations and, and, and falls plague us. And yet we said we're actually learning to spiritually walk with God like little children. And then we come to a season of good disciples where it's fruitful. We feel victorious and it's a season of ministry and service. And it feels really good, but then eventually God allows disruption or even dissatisfaction to propel us closer toward his light and his love, and it's only in learning solitude and listening and responding in faith that we start to experience taste of a joy and a love that's exponentially better. And that then leads us to dwelling five, desiring oneness. Now, as we said, these dwellings or seasons are not sequential or linear necessarily. You might live for a long season in, in dwelling three and then Find yourself for a short time tasting dwelling four and then going back to dwelling three before you really start to camp out and live in dwelling four and then start to taste dwelling five. And there might be an area of your life where you go back to two for a, a short season and then back to five. So it's not linear. Now, at the same time, uh, Teresa of Avia, who, uh, and by the way, this, this series is based on a book called Mansions of the Heart. Uh, by a guy named Thomas Ashbrook. And he's writing about these ancients of faith and, and their description of this journey. And Teresa of Avia lived in the, 15th, uh, the 14th, 15th century, is one of them. And she uses a, another analogy that's uh, helpful in this because it's what we're doing versus what God's doing. So she says, imagine your soul like a garden that needs watering. And in the first, second, and third dwelling, it's mainly us going to the river, to, to, to the river of God, and we dip our bucket and we water the garden. In other words, it's a lot of effort on our part. But then as we move into dwelling four and, and partially in dwelling five, it's less our work and more 
God's work. She says it's kind of like having a water wheel and, and, you know, pipes that you can use to just aim and, and begin to water the garden. But then in 5 and really 6 and 7, it's almost all God's work. She likens it to just letting rain fall and water the garden. We're just allowing it. It's God doing it. And all we have to do is just receive and not block. Now, dwelling five, uh, we've called desiring oneness because it's what Jesus forecasted his last night on earth when he prayed for all of us. In John 17, he says, I'm praying not only for these 12 disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. It's us. I pray that they will all be one just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so the world will believe you sent me. I've given them the glory you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. I've revealed them to you and I will continue to do so. Then your love for me will be in them and I will be in them. Now, the reason dwelling five, six, and seven are not talked much about uh, in the church today is quite honestly, it sounds a a little weird. So in season one and two, the analogy that we find in scripture is that of being spiritually born and we are adopted by God and we're, we're learning to walk spiritually with a good parent, like little children, right? But then in season three and four, we talked about how the, the analogy shifts to friends with God as we obey him and co-workers that God is, is inviting us into his business. But now dwelling five through seven, the best analogy is actually bride to groom. We are the bride and the Lord is the groom and we're moving toward oneness. Now that may sound strange, Probably why it's not much talked about, but it's all over the scriptures. Let me just give you a a few. Isaiah 62, God will rejoice over you as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. And then Jesus, in Matthew 9, speaking of himself, said, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? A time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, he was, and they will fast. And then, of course, the end of the book of Revelation There's this thing called the wedding feast of the Lamb, of Jesus, where it says in Revelation 19, a time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb. His bride has prepared herself with the good deeds of God's holy people. So from Old Testament to New Testament, God ultimately desires us like a beloved bride that he will one day join with in a oneness that quite honestly makes the greatest marriage pale in comparison. And when that happens, all our other relationships, they don't, they don't go away. They're intensified and magnified in this one love. Now, if that sounds kind of weird, I understand. Because quite honestly, from hearing it from dwelling one or two or three, I, I would have thought that's kind of weird. I don't know. But think about it this way. Think about your deepest desires. What are the deepest longings? Now, you know, sometimes we, we, we get it, we kind of miss it. Sometimes we think our deepest desires are for stuff, material things, or recognition, or fame, or fortune. But, you know, you can get all those things, and if you still don't feel loved, you're going to long for something more. 
And if you haven't figured that out yet, go read Ecclesiastes. <laughs> Save yourself a ton of trouble and futility chasing the wind. But what we all want is to be deeply known, the good parts, the bad parts, to be understood and unconditionally loved anyway. We, we, we want to be seen, right? That, that our potential is seen. We want a champion who draws out the best in us, but even more, we want connection. We want a sense of, of deep communion, of oneness. And a, a very intimate, loving marriage can approximate some of this. You know, the oneness found in, in, in sexual love and a marriage symbolizes this. But even when you have that, there's still more we long for, isn't there? No person can fully satisfy us because we were designed ultimately for God. And that's why God uses this analogy of bride to groom. Now, what's God doing in this fifth dwelling? Well, God is beginning to give a taste experientially of this realization. That God is the one our hearts so deeply desire. And, and that connection or oneness with, with God is, is what we can't wait for. Now, it won't actually begin to happen till dwelling seven and not fully until eternity. And there's a great mystery to this because God is mainly going to be doing it through dwelling or season five through seven. So it can't be manipulated or programmed. You can't go to a class to get it. It's a season of faith, maybe likened to engagement in dwelling five. It's like you, you've fallen in love and, and you can't wait to be together, but you also have to wait. So there's some frustration there. And in this season, you know, we, we continue to find solitude fulfilling. We spend more of each moment of the day doing life with God. And so we find the mundane moments actually become something special. You know, it's kind of like, uh, kind of like a, a date, right? I mean, think about if, if, if you go to some park and some natural beauty and you spend hours just walking by yourself, you know, just alone, you might start to feel lonely or bored. But do the same walk for the same amount of time with someone you're falling deeply in love with. It's the best day ever, right? And in this season, we're experiencing the, the mundane moments of life become special because we're not doing them by ourselves anymore. We're doing them in this deepening intimacy with God. Now, at the same time that we want more of that, we also become aware something's blocking it. So there's a fulfillment mixed with a frustration in this season. You know, frustration because we still sin. And we're kind of shocked at it because we don't want to, so it grieves us. And God uses some of these frustrations and the desire for more to bring us to a place of willingness to let him do a deeper work of healing. So for instance, if evil perpetrated uh, childhood trauma, or we went through some PTSD event. We were deeply damaged in our soul. We probably found some aspects of healing in the earlier dwellings, but there's a deeper healing God wants to do. And we've come so far to dwelling five, you know, God actually starts to surface these blockages and they shock us because we're like, we should be past this, but actually God's doing something in that. You know, maybe Anger starts to come up or impatience or fears or, or acting out. And, and we don't understand why is this coming up now when things have been going so well with God. 
But God is waiting for us to be at a place of trusting his love enough to let him guide us toward this deeper healing. It's, it's amazing. He patiently waits for us to be ready. Now, what can we do? Well, often in dwelling five, it doesn't come till midlife. Now, not always. I mean, it, it can come at any time, but many times, especially in America, just the busyness of life, our career goals, our careers, you know, raising children, and just the noisy distractions everywhere keep us from getting to a place of quiet and solitude where God can start to unearth these things inside. And again, remember we said these things are blocking the light and the love of God from reaching us, from drawing us closer to him. Solitude and contemplative prayer, when, where we spend less time talking at God and more time just being with God is essential in this time. And Christian mentors who are farther down that path or experience more, or therapists who understand the seasons of spiritual growth, but also the things that block it, that can be helpful in this. But remember, God ultimately is setting the agenda. So you just staying trusting and willing to follow, even if it feels scary to go there, to face stuff inside, that's the best posture. Meditating on, on verses that I'm going to share with you that relate to dwelling five can help you recognize what God's doing. Because when we don't recognize it, you know, sometimes we just stay stuck. Now, for me, about 15 years ago, I started to have a stirring in my spirit. And I remember reading this psalm, Psalm 73, a psalm of David. And it kind of struck me, Psalm 73, 23, I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will lead me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion, what I get forever. Now, in my younger years of following Jesus, I, I read that, and I, I'd read like, earth has nothing I desire besides you. And if I were honest, I was like, mm, I don't get that. Sorry. <laughs> but I love my life. There's lots of things I desire besides God, if I were honest. And that's a stage of growth. And God is incredibly patient with us, you know, as we, as we walk through these stages. But about 15 years ago, I had... You know, I had walked with God for probably 20 years and seen so much evidence of his goodness and his kindness through these stages. And I read this and I, I thought, yes, to the depth of my soul, yes, I get it. Because what, what I had realized in this journey is that every good thing I enjoy in life, all of them are just fingers pointing back to the good gift giver. But the good gift giver is better than any gift he could ever give. And all these intense longings I had were ultimately for the gift giver, the lover of my soul who's given all these good things I enjoy in life. And, and so I memorized this, uh, this Psalm 73, and I meditated on it. I wrote a song to God about it that you'll never hear. The angels have heard it. They like it. God likes it because it's, it's my love song to him. You will never hear it <laughs> and be glad. But it's that desire that is leading us into this, this dwelling. That realization, you know, you're really all I'm longing for. Now, um, that next little phrase, or that phrase before, 
Whom have I in heaven but you? I still didn't completely understand until I wrote Imagine Heaven. In Imagine Heaven, uh, you know, I wrote a chapter called The Highlight of Heaven. Because what the people, you know, that I interviewed around the world who clinically died and found themselves in the presence of Jesus said is that all the beauty, all the adventure, all the great reunions with people they loved, nothing compared to his presence. For instance, when a, when a terrorist bomb ripped through her church while she was in it in the Middle East, Samah writes about being in Jesus' presence in that moment. Seeing the majesty and indescribable beauty of the Lord made me speechless. When I was in his presence, it was all I wanted. Being with Jesus in heaven made me one with him in a way I could never have imagined. I thought what he thought. I dreamed what he dreamed. I felt what he felt. Medical doctor, Dr. Rip Richard Eby, when he clinically died, said this. This will be hard for people on earth to understand, but I was instantly in Messiah, in him. I knew I was me, fully me, yet I was in him. His love is in a different dimension than our idea of love. And Dean Braxton, who I interviewed here last, uh, last spring, said, Jesus is pure light. His brightness was before me, around me, part of me, and in me. Jesus is more beautiful and wonderful and glorious than I can explain. Everything about Jesus is love. His love for you is so personal, it seems as if it is only for you. Dean said, it was like I was the only one he loved in all of creation. I knew he loved others, but it seemed as if I was the only one. You know, these people who died and came back are saying what David, King David, writes in the psalm, whom have I in heaven but you? And I knew there's a great reunion in heaven. We have each other again, but none and nothing and no one compares to that oneness of his love that we begin to long for in dwelling five. Now, Teresa of Avia says that our desire to totally and only do the will of God is the key to growing in this experience of, of growing union with God that starts in dwelling five. And she says, we're still doing ministry, we're still serving, we're still doing, but our doing flows much more out of being with God. She says, it's kind of like a couple that now knows how to finish each other's sentences, right? Kind of can anticipate what the other's thinking. And in this dwelling place, ministry flows out of that. Even as we're talking to another person, we're listening to God's spirit. What do you want me to say? What do you want to do through me for this person right now? And we begin to understand how to listen with, with two ears, with spiritual ears and our human physical ears. And we're be better able to mediate God's love and, and value and care to that other person. To say or do just the right thing at the right time. And it's, it's powerful ministry that comes from a whole different place than just our good efforts. He shows us what he's doing in every interaction. There's joy in that. And Teresa says, how we love our neighbor displays this great love we are experiencing from God. Now evil is still at work. And what evil does... First of all, is when we are in this deep communion, this walking with God, is evil flees. But evil is sneaky and comes around and tries to attack in less obvious ways. And discouragement is the biggest way. It's the greatest strategy of, of the enemy in this fifth dwelling. Uh, to just keep, do anything to distract 
or discourage us from this powerful ministry that comes out of being with God. And evil may also attack with shame because, again, God is letting some ugly things come up to the surface so we will bring them to him because that's where a deeper healing can be found. But evil may attack us with shame to try to drive us away from being with God in that time. But remember, it's coming up as a diagnostic to bring to God. For instance, one woman talked about in the season uh, how this growing fear that made no sense, kept coming up even as her great desire for, for God was, was growing. And then she realized God was showing, using it as a diagnostic to show an unhealed fear that came out of childhood sexual abuse. And as she realized that and took it to him, an even deeper healing took place. Or one man talked about in his deepening experience of God's love, he started to become super impatient with his kids, which just made no sense and shocked him until he took it to God in those times of silence and God showed him childhood wounds still unhealed in him being projected onto his kids. And that allowed for a grieving of what happened in his childhood and a, and a deeper healing. God's so amazing, you guys. Because he understands us and he doesn't push. He waits for us to move toward him and he helps us in this deeper healing. And that's why only when we're strong enough, only when we've experienced enough of his love, are we ready for what comes next, the dark night of the soul. You know, in the, in the seasons, dwellings, the dark night can come during five or six. Uh, we don't really know, and it's kind of separate from those, but it also leads us into those. And we'll talk more about six and seven next week. But the dark night of the soul is the most confusing ever. It only comes after God has given us these great gifts of his love. We want so much more that we cry out for more. I want more. But the path to more requires God doing something so deep in us that all other attachments, all other idols or possessions or desires that get in the way of blocking God's light and love get stripped away. That's to bring us to what our souls deeply long for. A taste, really, of heaven on earth. What we'll talk about more next week. But what God is doing in this dark night is confusing. Because it feels like God's pulled away. It feels like he's left us without his light. And we're in spiritual darkness. And that's confusing. It's like, what did I do wrong? You know, and, and it's not what you've done wrong. It's what you've done right. And that's what's confusing. Now, the dark night of the soul is not the same as trials or tests that may have come from your decisions or bad choices in those earlier seasons. It's not the same as just normal tests or trials that, that come in those earlier seasons. It comes only to those whose love and faithfulness to God has grown so strong they can handle it. It's not punishment. It's the opposite. It's this. Romans eight seventeen. If we are to share his glory, we must also share his sufferings. Now, even a mature believer who doesn't really understand about the dark night, which I had not been taught about this, feel like it's punishment. And even a mature believer will say, what am I doing wrong? Why are you doing this? What's happening? Don't you love me, God? Haven't I loved you enough? It's a confusing time. But God is doing something in us. 
deeper than we can even articulate. Mother Teresa uh, had a season five and six just overwhelming experience of the presence of God and his, God's loving kindness that propelled her to want to go to Calcutta. But when she got to Calcutta, she experienced a deep darkness for a long season, this dark night. In the Bible, you know, Job struggles with this because he's been faithful and God seems distant and he's allowing evil to attack. Why? And he asks why and his, his friends get it wrong. They say it's because you've done something wrong and God corrects them. He says, no, he is the finest man in all the earth. He's blameless, God says. A man of complete integrity. It's confusing. But there are examples throughout the Bible of this spiritual darkness that he leads his faithful through to arrive at the place our souls long for. David sings of it in Psalm 13. Oh Lord, how long will you forget me? Forever? It's gone on a long time. How long will you look the other way? How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? How long will my enemy have the upper hand? But I trust in your unfailing love. I will rejoice because you've saved me. You've rescued me. Those throughout history have gone through this, but they've clung to God despite the feelings. And in that, God is stripping away all that hinders from what our soul longs for most. I'll share with you a little of my dark night, but let me just say, if you're in it, it's okay to voice the grief and the sadness to God. It's why he put these things in the scriptures. It's why he put these songs in the Psalms, because sometimes it's so deep, only a song can really bring us there. I can't pray like you 
When you're in the dark night, that's what it feels like. It feels like he's gone missing. It's not true. He's right there. He's holding you close. He's doing something deeper in your spirit than you can even detect. He's cleaning away everything that gets in the way of what you long for most. Though in those earlier seasons, we didn't realize it. You know, 12 years ago, uh, I was having a day of solitude, and I was, I was actually praying and fasting for our church and reading the book of Isaiah, and a verse just leapt off the page. I mean, that's the only way I can explain it. I read it, and it just it jumped at me like, like God was saying in my mind, this is for you, hold tightly to it. And now understand, there was, there was nothing like what it referred to going on. There was nothing bad happening, nothing hurtful, but the impression was so strong I, I wrote it down, I stuck it on my desk to see every day, I memorized it, I wrote it in my journal. Here's, here's what it was, Isaiah 41, 9. I have chosen you, I have not rejected you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That's the year my dark night began. And over the next five years, honestly, I got really confused. I mean, I felt rejected by God. I felt like he abandoned me. I felt like nothing could go right. I started to become so discouraged and dismayed. I mean, it's funny, huh? Because he said, this is not the truth. Don't believe what you feel. But I felt it so intensely. I said, but you're wrong. (laughs) Because this is the truth because I feel it. And yet he had warned me. No, I have not rejected you. I'm with you, so don't be dismayed. And I don't have time to go into all the reasons uh, of all the stuff that was going on in my life. I met with a counselor after about five years. I tried to summarize it. Um, My summary was 20 pages. He didn't read it. I wouldn't have read it either. And it was all my why God and why this thing and why that thing and what am I doing wrong and why aren't you helping me? It was interesting, after about three or four years of this, um, a friend called, and he said, hey, I, I, I know you, and this was completely out of the blue. And he said, I know you, you and your family love Santa Barbara. We used to live there. And he said, I, I've got all these points, hotel points that are about to expire. I can't use them. I want to get you a hotel in Santa Barbara if you can take it this week. And we said, we'll take it. And it was such a gift, not just from my friend, but from God, because that hotel was right across. He got it. 
but it happened to be just across the street from the marina that I used to go to uh, for my solitude time with God when I lived in Santa Barbara. And uh, every morning during that vacation, I would wake up at 5 a.m. because I was still on central time, and I would just go to the beach there, and I would two or three hours spend talking to God, still complaining, quite honestly, still trying to pray myself out of this. And after day four, I get this thought in my mind, you haven't gone to the marina yet. And I hadn't. And I love the marina. It's where, it's where I had this wonderful honeymoon time with God. And I hadn't gone to the marina. And I, and I kept getting this thought, go to the marina. And I was like, I don't want to go to the marina. It's like, why don't you want to go to the marina? I didn't know. And then I started to realize, I think because I don't like you right now, God. <laughs> you hurt me. It's like, go to the marina. And so I did. I, I just, in faith, I walked out on the breakwater all the way around, and there's this bench there, and I sat down on the bench, and you can look back across the marina into these beautiful mountains. And I, and I looked at the mountains, and, and, and I remembered that honeymoon time with God when I was working as an engineer. And it was like God was just doing so much in my life, and I was, I was coming alive in ways I had, I'd never come alive before, and I was I was in, enamored with what God was doing, and I, I would drive from where I worked uh, at my job in Ventura into Santa Barbara every day, and when I saw those mountains, I would just burst into gratitude. I was like, I can't believe I get to live here. This is so beautiful. Thank you, God. And now I sat years later on that bench, and I looked up, and I was like, it was so great. What happened? And I just sat listening for something. I got, I got nothing. And I brought this book with me that I was reading called Strengthening the Soul, uh, um, Strengthening the Soul of the Leader. And I was about halfway through and I brought it with me and I was like, okay, well, if you're not going to answer me, I guess I'll just read. And so I opened it up and the chapter I was on was called Consolation and Desolation. It was all about the leader going through the dark night of the soul, which I knew nothing about. And, and it was all about seasons of consolation, of these times when it just feels like God is with you and you're feeling so, so much joy and love and kind of like the wind of God is behind you and nothing can go wrong. And it's, it's consolation. And then there are seasons of desolation when it feels like God's pulled away, but he hasn't. He's with you, but the feelings aren't there. He's doing something deeper by faith. He's strengthening you in a way that circumstances can't take away. Because it's not based on circumstances. And I read that. And I looked up at the mountains. And I felt the Lord say, you know, when you lived here, those were seasons of consolation. And there'll be more. But now is a season of desolation. And I wish I could say, and that made it all better. <laughs> like, okay, good. And then we went through another year and everything got better. But that's not what happened. It continued on for years. And um, in that, I can look back now and see what God was doing and why he had me cling to that verse. Because he was stripping away all these other attachments that I thought I'd gotten rid of, but he was showing me. And that's the only way he would show me or could show me. Now, what evil is doing in this dark night is trying to use discouragement and lies and slander to keep you from holding on to God's word, to get you to believe that what you feel is the ultimate truth, but it's not. 
And I was driving myself crazy with my why questions, you know, with my analytical questions. And one time uh, I was with a, a spiritual friend and we were just talking about what was going on in my, in my life. And then all of a sudden he stops. He says, hey, can I ask you a question? Who's the lawyer in your head you're arguing against? And I sat there and I thought, and I was like, I don't know. But I realized because of that question, I'm arguing with God. I'm like, Job, arguing my case. Haven't I been faithful? Haven't I loved you enough? And that's when I started to realize it's not about that at all. And I stopped asking why. Every time I went to ask why, I changed it to how. How can I love you through this, God? How can I be faithful to you in this? And I clung to some passages. This is, this is uh, here's another interesting thing. It was in this season that God has me write Imagine Heaven. Something he'd been birthing in me for 30 years. But for whatever reason, it was in this season, my lowest point, that he chooses to write, have me write Imagine Heaven that has helped millions of people. What can we do in this season? Well, first realize you did nothing wrong and God is with you and he's guiding you and he's purifying you. He's doing something deeper in you than you can detect. But one day you'll see. And that's why I cling to these passages like Psalm 13 uh, that, that we read or like Habakkuk 3. This is people going through it. Though the fig tree does not bud, though there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet will I rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The Lord is my strength. And I realized meditating on these passages, I can still have joy. It's a promise. It doesn't have to be circumstantial. Nothing else needs to change. It's a choice. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. And I learned how to do that in this season. I learned how to find God and his joy even when things weren't okay. And what you need to know is it's okay to give voice to the pain and the grief and the purging, the sadness, because you're sharing in the sadness and the sufferings that God himself experiences connected to our broken world. You know, it's what Jesus experienced. But hold tight to him. Hold on to what he's done in your past, but hold on more importantly to his word and his promises. He is not uncaring. He's with you in it. Psalm 56, 8. You keep track of all my sorrows. You've collected all my tears in your bottle. You've recorded each one of them in your book. What I can say for everyone I know who has been through this is they all say the same thing. Is worth it. Now they also say, I'd never choose to go through it again and I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy, but it's worth it for what I'm experiencing now with God. Whatever season you're in, know that there's seasons of desolation, but consolation comes. Hold tightly to the one who is never gonna leave you. Let's pray. God, thank you for your promises. And Lord, through the seasons of life, thank you too that 
You never give us more than we can handle, even though we would beg to differ sometimes. And yet you do it in a way that you are giving us more and more of what our soul deeply craves, deeply longs for. A love, a joy, a peace that no circumstance can take away because it comes from you. And so God, wherever we are on this journey, on this path of life, we pray that you would continue to to guide us. Whether we're in seasons of consolation and great hope and joy, help us be grateful in that and, and recognize all your good gifts so that when those times of desolation come, we will cling to them and cling to you that you might purify us and give us even more of yourself. In Jesus' name we pray.